a lot of people with cats and gardens put these wires around you know uh, around their gardens and they put this collar around the cat's neck uh, and the cats then wander around not knowing what's going on they get near to this wire and they get an electric shock but after about a week or two the cats don't go near those wires and what we've now got in our culture is those wires now are all over the place so so we've all got these little collars around us you know electrocuting us but the worst thing is we now know, don't even know where they are Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissen. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our guest today is a practicing and published psychotherapist, Andrew Thomas. Welcome to Trigonometry. Well, well thank you. Welcome. Why am I saying welcome? It's, it's great to <laughs> be You've here. taken over the space. You feel <laughs> right at home. Uh, yeah. You did allude to the fact that you work with couples uh, before we started, and you said this felt a little bit like it, and I did complain there's not enough sex in this relationship. Well, so. we can work on that afterwards. Shall I, we? I we can so. put a half hour into that. I I'm absolutely sure hope so. We need to get, get, get more love into this. But look, uh, joking aside, it's great to have you on. Uh, I'll be... Uh, honest with our audience, we, we got you on because you got in touch with us and you had yeah. some very interesting things you wanted to talk to us about uh, from a psychotherapist perspective, but particularly relevant to the political context. And one of those things uh, was the idea that people uh, live right and vote left. So talk to us about that. So we have across the Western world now uh, a, a large part of the middle classes who the way they live their lives is is from my perspective admirable they 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 they're resilient they take responsibility for their outcomes in their lives they work really hard um uh, they, they if they meet uh, uh obstacles in their way they try to overcome them in fact they really largely look into themselves for the resilience and the resources uh and the capacity to learn to overcome the problems and, and, and achieve what they're hoping to achieve. And the other thing is they raise their children in that light. So they, they raise their children to be resilient, resourceful, adaptive. But when they go into the voting booth, they vote for parties that promote policies and a, and a cultural outlook that are largely, in many ways, diametrically opposite to the way they actually live their lives themselves. I mean, not to be too political, you know, we have the classic case of Diane Abbott, uh, doyen of the left, whose, whose son went to a private school. You know, so the way she actually lived her life, as a, or lives her life, she hasn't gone yet, uh, lives her life compared to how she actually votes and, and the types of policy she supports that are diametrically opposite. So this is ways. very interesting, Andrew, because what, this is one of the things that I've been kind of chronicling in some of the articles I've written and in my book that I'm working on, etc., which is that there is a often an inconsistency between the things that people do and the things that people say one ought to do or that you ought to do. So w what is your theory about why that's happening? Well, it, it, the, the, just say, I mean, I'm increasingly uneasy about the labelling virtue signaller and woke and all the rest of it. I mean, if, if take Diane Abbott. I mean, what achievements she's had in life? You, you, you know, what, what, what barriers she's broken down and overcome? And, and I'm... I'm increasingly uneasy about how people are, so the, the polarisation and the labelling that's going on. But the drivers behind that uh, are, there's a number of core, if you want me to talk about the sort of psycho, psychological, the sort of, and also the evolutionary psychological and the neuroscientific drivers behind that, is that we, we have, there's two things that, that um, uh, genetics are an important factor in our propensity to experience anxiety, depression. So if you read a book called Blueprint by Robert Plowman, you'll see a wonderful a resume and a coverage of where we are in understanding that. But it's looking really very convincing that our genetics are very influential. But it's also how they interact with the environment. If you put an environment around young children that's chaotic, uncertain, where their attachment is being switched on, switched off, 
you're going to start to get more and more children growing into adults who demonstrate, you know, uh, sort of what we would say maladaptive uh, avoidant behavioural patterns. So uh, the, a study has been done that, that people who have got left of centre leanings have got a greater propensity towards anxiety and seeing the world through what I would call a foppy lens. So, so what do I mean by a foppy lens? Well, there, there, there's a tendency to trigger into a survival type of pattern. So imagine 100,000 years ago, you're walking through the bush to pick uh, berries or whatever. You come to a clearing. On the other side, uh, there's a berry bush, but it's moving in a strange way. All the birds have gone a bit quiet and there's nothing else moving. What happens is you focus. So everything focuses. So you focus on the bush. The next thing is you overreact. So your, your survival system, you start to get adrenaline pumping through your system. So you overreact. So you get F, you focus. You overreact. And P is you become pessimistic. So we know from David Attenborough documentaries that there are far more antelope than there are tigers. But you'll be pessimistic because you'll see that the bush is likely to have behind it the most incredibly big tiger that hasn't eaten for three weeks with a taste just for you. So you focus, you overreact, you're pessimistic and you get it as a package. The reason you get it as a package is it's no use focusing and being pessimistic if you don't overreact. Because if that lion comes out and you haven't started to overreact, it might make five meters to you before your adrenaline system starts going, okay? And so that could be the difference between you getting your DNA into the next generation or not. So you, you focus, you overreact, you're pessimistic, you get it as a package, and the I is it's inaccurate. And the reason why evolution has made that eco, uh, inaccurate is 100,000 years ago, you could, be, you could run away many times but only eat once. Mm. It's better to overreact just in case to yeah. be safe. So, so that is a survival system yeah. that's in every mm. single one of us, 7.8 billion of us, mm -hmm. that we've mm -hmm. got that in us. So if you then couple that with a, uh, an early stage development, I'm going to sound a bit clinical, the system, uh, early stage family life for, for um, children, where is dad there or dad not there? Is dad looking at the mobile phone? Is dad not looking at the mobile phone? Is mum there or no? Or is, is, is she there or not there? You know, oh, where, where did dad go? There's a, there's a new man in the house or whatever. So that is likely to develop a higher proportion of your society with a heightened foppy reaction to the world around them. And has that happened? Have people been growing up in increasingly unstable uh, childhood environments? Uh, well, yeah, since the 1950s, yeah, it, it looks like... Uh, what, what, what you're saying is, I mean, this isn't sort of saying, you know, there's a stereotypical, if you're like this, it's going to be dreadful. But, but overall, the, the challenge of raising a child, I mean, the correlation between single-parent families and all sorts of things that, that happen in life is, is, is not good because it's incredibly challenging to raise a child by yourself. There are many single parents that do that. But there are also now, because I sit in rooms with couples that have, you know, for thousands of hours, it's not confined just to single parenting, you know, the pressures, this, this self-actualizing goal that, that, that generates this incredible high hours working culture where whatever car you've got, you know, whatever look you've got, you know, you know that, that you've managed to attain will, will fade quite quickly. So, so, so we do have a society that in, in many ways is sort of set to generate a proportion of the, you know, the, coming back to the irony, if you look at the middle classes, their, their goal is stability, you know, they do whatever they can to create a stable environment around their children. You could say some are over the top, you know, tiger, mm -hmm. tiger parents. Uh, but, but the outcome of a lot of policies today is to create incredible uncertainty in a lot of households, uh, which the survival system, the attachment system of young children, especially at the age of two, three, four, five, are hypersensitive to. 
And, and at those ages, they're experimenting with different behavioural patterns. So if mum or dad are unavailable or incredibly angry, then they may experiment with a shutdown type of survival system, which is to self-anesthetise. Or they may start to experiment and develop a, what I call a legacy behaviour, which is an acting out type of behavioural pattern, which is dragging the attention of the parent back onto them in any way that system can do. So, so if you've got a society, a culture that's generating sort of uh, more fragile, more foppy orientated styles of behaviour, and then along comes the noughties and we have social media, we have uh, the capacity, and I'm coming back onto the middle classes now. So if you've got a greater proportion of the middle classes who are likely to trigger at a lower level of activation into a foppy-like response, if you get that and then you ram social media into that and the, the and incredible OLED screens and high definition and surround sound, and then... You allow, you, then people get into their own silos because it's much less threatening to be out of your silo. What you're going to do is you, you're going to get people um, sort of triggering and trying to find ways to rid themselves of the discomfort in terms of the dichotomy between their comfortable lives and the chaos, terror, the burning fires in Australia or California and their comfortable lives. And so... If you have a tendency to trigger into a foppy-like state, you're going to really just reach out for really quite sort of um, immediate solutions to calm yourself. So you'll be looking for avoidant styles of behaviour. Also, if your neighbours are talking about how dreadful the world is, uh, um, how the world's going to come to an end, you know, very soon then again, remember that attachment metric is playing out in those relationships as well. The, the, but isn't there also a vested interest in society? Because the more foppy-like behaviour people have, the more likely they are to be good consumers, to buy things, to desire things, to, to this constant consumption that we have in our society, which is necessary to keep the economy growing. Well, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, if 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 it's self-actualization, which is which is the never achievable goal, I mean, if you go out and buy a book on meditation, and two years later, you're a, a, yourself levitating above some glass-like Andean lake, and out of the corner of your eye you see Sting with Trudy having tantric sex four foot above the lake, you know. God, what are you going to do? You've, you've somehow got to do your meditation even better. Mm. Now, this isn't this avoidant way of looking at things, the driver. It isn't nihilistic. It isn't sort of a, well, we should not try to do anything. It's more about actually being able to look at the drivers for your behaviour and look at them that they are driven by your behavioural patterns, by how your system got trained. Uh, by this this whole physiology, this whole neuroscience, this whole neurological system, which you've got, and that it means that if you've got it and that's what's driving it, you've actually got the hands on the levers. So that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try your best, push yourself as hard as you can, but that goal, that drive, can come out of much more understanding of whether of how positive or negative it is for you in your life, given how you are and the resources you've got, rather than just being handed down this existential goal that Maslow came up with uh, in 1943. In many ways, isn't the pinnacle of self-actualization social media, where you can actually curate the, the way you want people to see you, the way you want to be viewed, who you are, if you look at something like Instagram, you can physically change the way you look. You can create this life which actually has no bearing on, on your real life whatsoever. It's the, it's the pinnacle of avoidance. Mm. It, it allows you to sculpt your avoidant behaviour in any way, shape or form you like. I, I mean, that, that, 
I mean, Jeff Bezos, not Jeff Bezos, uh, who's the, fa- uh, the Facebook guy? Oh, Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. I mean, he probably thinks he's the greatest business person ever in the whole wide world. I mean, his bank balance would say so. Yeah, well, it would do. But, th- but this avoidant style of behaviour isn't recent. It's been going, oh, the first Homo sapiens 200,000 years ago, we developed language, what, 50 to 100,000 years ago. It, you know, the... The, the, we've wanted to have the best possible level of attachment we can have with the people around us for 100,000 years. And long comes social media, and hey, presto, you can... You, 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 you're in a society that is, is slicing and dicing what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, and hey, presto, you can just suddenly find other people who've got the same avoidant behavioural patterns as you have. So... You know, Zuckerberg may have thought, well, God, I've created this incredible thing that I've pushed onto it, but the human race has just been gagging for Facebook for a couple of hundred thousand years. You know, it, it, it fed into a phenomenal demand, but that demand has also been driven by, the, you know, this, this culture of, uh, you know, the right way to speak, the right way to look, the right way to behave. And if you look at the education of young children now, or, or males or female, or whatever, there are so many criteria now that, 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 that mean you're either in or you're out. I mean, I don't know if you, you know any people with cats. Well, people, a lot of, a lot of people with cats and gardens put these wires around, you know, uh, around their gardens, and they put this collar around the cat's neck. Uh, and the cats then wander around not knowing what's going on. They get near to this wire and they get an electric shock. But after about a week or two, the cats don't go near those wires. And what we've now got in our culture is those wires now are all over the place. So, so we've all got these little collars around us, you know, electrocuting us. But the worst thing is we now know, don't even know where they are. Mm. It's so good that you bring that up because, as, as you know, it's one of the things we've talked a lot about on the show, which is the idea of freedom of expression, freedom of speech, uh, why suddenly it seems like, to me at least, uh, things that we used to all be able to, 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 to debate, to discuss, to let people have wrong opinions, to let people have bad opinions, to let people have whatever opinions they wanted. I mean, look at... You know, there's a lot of talk now about how we've got to shut down conspiracy theories and ideas about what's causing the pandemic or why are there lockdowns or why is this and why is that. Well, it was 20 years ago you had 9-11, a, a huge terrorist attack, loads of conspiracy theories flying about all the time. It never occurred to anyone that they should be shut down. I remember watching conspiracy uh, documentaries about 9-11 on, on, on social media or on uh, later in the day, but also on TV. It, it was considered a normal part of the social discourse about things, that people are allowed to have different thoughts about different things, even if they're completely wrong. And yet we've got to a position where now we seem to desire a massive crackdown on that. But if you, if you look at that through the lens of the live right, vote left middle classes, mm. who, who have the handles on the levers of power in society they're they're in the think tanks they're in the schools they're in the universities they're they they're the sort of people who become mps be they labor lib dem or conservative those those live right vote left well maybe not the conservatives but you know well, you know also the conservatives yeah, now yeah well possibly yeah 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 freudian slip there uh so so but if you look at it the 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 um Cognitive dissonance that's possible for them, which is, a, are you aware with yes. cognitive yeah, dissonance? Yeah, yeah. Yes. The, no wonder they don't want to talk to their friends about politics or economics that maybe see things differently, because that might generate a sense of cognitive dissonance between the, how they live and how they vote that will generate, it generates a sort of foppy type reaction. People get triggered up. So that's why you see in the middle class circles, uh, you know, if ever, if ever people shying away from talking about politics because it's really uncomfortable. I mean, that, if you, if you, you I don't know how we're going to get through this, but if you look at the 1970s, that was a wonderful example of cognitive dissonance. People think that Margaret Thatcher came in and she was this incredible leader with this vision. I see it slightly differently, is that in the 1970s, 
uh, you, you know, people who'd bought into socialism, nationalisation, state control, sort of the state could somehow define which industries were the best to go in to and invest in. Well, in the 1970s, those very same people ended up walking past piles of rubbish or lighting their homes with candles or experiencing three-day weeks, or I think it was in 1970, 29 million days of, of strikes. And that was an incredible cognitive dissonant experience that challenged their views. And that is what I think Margaret Thatcher was able to build on. She was, uh, she was able to, uh, the, 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 uh, she came into a society that had in a way been partially reconditioned. And at the moment, what we have is a society that enables people, you know, through uh, the incredible printing presses, you know, modern, mon modern, modern monetary theory, theory. Uh, that enables us to insulate ourselves from whatever views might, we might want, because theoretically, society is so incredibly wealthy. In other words, we can advocate, let's say, just hypothetically speaking, for open borders without thinking of the consequences that that would have on the country, let's say. Not least because we are insulated ourselves from them. Well, the people in power the, the, and the middle classes that may hold the, those, those views were, might live in very leafy monocultural uh, environments. Uh, they have maybe the muscle, the financial muscle to buy houses in the catchment area of the best schools. Their, their children will typically go to Russell Group universities. They'll compete for jobs, uh, you know, that, that, that require very high levels of English skills that maybe aren't competing at the, the other end. But, 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 but I don't hold that. In, you know, if you look at those people, they're, they're models of industriousness. I mean, that's the problem. When you, when, you, when you start to go down that rabbit hole, you can start to become condemning. But, but they, actually, they actually mimic, you know, really ideal behaviours. What, what I would be condemning is advocating for things with, with no regard for the impact of those things on yes. other people. I am happy to engage in discussion with those you, people. Yeah. I don't believe they're disgusting. I don't believe that they're immoral. I just think that they are mistaken. And if we were to have a conversation, I hope that we could change each other's minds and come to a compromise. What I have found though, one of my best friends is, uh, you know, uh, one of these kind of almost loony lefties, if you like. Yeah. And whenever we have a conversation, I, I've got him to say this many times. I go, look, but you look, I'm an immigrant, right? You realize that when you allow large numbers of people to come into a country without the opportunity to integrate properly, it causes problems, don't you? He'll go, yes, yes, yes. And then, and I talk him through the whole thing. And he goes, look, I understand all of that. I just think we should have open borders. What we are witnessing there is an avoidant behavioral pattern. Right. So, so what's driving him to behave like that, which you find frustrating? I mean, if you were really, what, what I'm hearing for a lot of people in this situation, if they try to engage in people who, who do the live right, vote left stuff, mm. if, you, if you, maybe your friend doesn't, doesn't sort of live right, I don't know, but, but what, what they're experiencing is they get very upset very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, 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 you've got, you've got, you've got a good point there. Yeah, they do, they yeah. do. So, 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 <laughs> so, and, that, and what you're witnessing is an avoidant behavioural right. pattern because it's conversation over. Yes. Yeah, it's conversation over. Let's split up. Let's move apart, and let's not address it. But that, but that is a survival orientated. You know, that's an avoidant orientated behavioural. So, pattern. what can we do about that as a society? Because it seems to me that it's quite important for people to be able to discuss practical ideas about the direction of travel. Do we take a left turn? Do we take a right turn? Do we keep going straight? Do we slam on the brakes? That, to me, is a practical conversation about ensuring the well-being of everybody going forward, particularly our children, grandchildren, etc. We've got important decisions to make as a society, right? Yeah. So how do we, how do we bridge those divides? How, would, how do we, within ourselves and particularly with other people? Well, I'd like to say we, we, we shift away from Maslow's conception at the higher end, that it's self-actualization, and we move to a, a more accurate and a sort of a more uh, accurate model of what human motivation and human drive is really made up of. 
Okay. Uh, uh, and uh, and move to a place where more of us, uh, uh, many more of us in the West, are aware of what drives our emotional life, what causes us to trigger. So, so for your good friend who, who says, "Well, blah de blah," well, it doesn't. Does he get? He doesn't sound like he gets really angry, but he almost sounds like he sort of withdraws. He sort of shuts down from the right. debate. You know, which is another avoidant style of behaviour. He sort of self-anesthetise it because he just doesn't want to go there. Yes. Because to touch on that live rail gen would really generate a lot of discomfort. So if he could become more aware of uh, how he triggers around these subjects, so, so he could actually notice, his, uh, I developed this other model, which is the reflective mind, reactive brain, reactive body. So... You know, this system is phenomenally complex. Uh, and you can go on training courses now that, that pick up individual parts of the brain and they say it does this or that. So what I decided to do in, in my work was create a model that enabled uh, clients to really just see the basic core system of the, hum of the human, which is a reflect capacity to be reflective, the reflective mind, the reactive brain, which is going all the time, yours is going on at the time, you know, what is this guy going on about, what, whatever. Mm -hmm. You're asking it to do that. It's just ramming uh, narrative and sensations, or, uh, you know, narrative into the surface of your brain and sensations across your body. So you've got a reactive body and a reactive brain that's constantly interacting. So if we can, a lot of the work I'm doing now and, and other therapists who are using the rainbow map or if you want to go sensory motor therapy, uh, 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 is the, we're trying to enable our clients to notice their system triggering. So, so I've got this one concept which is called a trigger flag, which is typically a physical sensation. So, so as a lot of people trigger, they notice their throats go or the jaws go. And if you can notice yourself triggering, or withdrawing, you can actually then exert a little bit more choice about whether, oh, okay, you know, here goes Constantine. This is the experience I've got. I feel really uneasy about this. I just want to shut this conversation down. I don't want to go there. If you can actually notice that, 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 that driver, then you can exert more choice about whether you obey it or overrule it. So... There's two ways out of this that we've got in the West. We're either going to go through a 1970s and we're going to get co cognitive dissonance. There's going to be widespread. It wasn't meant to work like this. I mean, a lot of people are starting to look at it like that, aren't they? That, that hold on, you know, so if we were, you know, if, if, if we were trying to clear the area, like, like we, we've made everyone able to get a degree now. Now, the last year, whether they turn up to university or not, you know that <laughs> that 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 uh, uh, that whole thing, you know, of uh, self-actualization. If self-actualization, you know, the politicians of the last thirty years, if part of self-actualization society is everyone's going to get a degree, everyone can have a degree. But we're also already starting to see the cognitive dissonance getting in there because companies can't tell the difference now, and degrees are going down and down in value. So, so, you know, maybe we'll get the cognitive dissonant bit by bit and we'll be able to sort of turn the corner or maybe it will be a 1970s type of mass cognitive dissonance where you really see what you get when you nationalise everything. Isn't it? Look or not everything. So, and the other thing is uh, more awareness of how your system, your survival system triggers. This is all very intelligent, and you're a far more intelligent man than me, and good luck to you. Isn't it a question of just being fucking brave and having a little bit of balls and saying what you think? Do you know, we feel uncomfortable. We feel uncomfortable at certain points. When I started my teaching career, I felt uncomfortable and being in front of 30 kids. But you have to do it in order to have a career. You feel uncomfortable when you ask a woman out, but otherwise you're never going to have sex. Why is it that we now have a culture where we feel bad about being uncomfortable? Life's uncomfortable, isn't it? Or am yeah, I just getting old? Yeah, yeah, but we've all got metaphorical. You are getting old, but we, yeah, we've all got mind. metaphorical collars around our necks that electrocute ourselves. Mm. So, so you've got lovely, you know, this stuff about the, you know, the 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 live right, vote left, middle classes. 
We've, we've all got friends like that. And we, we love them and like them, you know, and, and connect very strongly. And if you come out, and I've tried it a few times, if you come out and try to challenge them, I mean, this is a cult. You know, they're, they're, they'll double down and you'll lose your friends. You know, that's the way it seems at the moment. I mean, uh, you know, how do you actually try to engage in conversations with people who, if they start to get into that conversation, will become increasingly uncomfortable because of that cognitive dissonance? I, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a psychological driver for them. They, tr you know, they trigger and then, then the reflective mind starts shutting down. So with your friend, the, ref the capacity to be reflective starts to, to, to go down and the reactive brain, reactive body start to dominate. Mm. I mean, I'll give you a quick example in this. I mean, the, the door to this room is over there, okay? If that handle goes down, I can guarantee you instantaneously every single one of our reflective minds will shut instantaneously because we'll turn and look around there. And that's an example of compulsive behavior. And that's what you're dealing with. So as you start with your friend, you say, come on, you're just, just wrong. You know, come on, look at this, look at this. How does that work? Not very well, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. And, and do you think that school has got a part to play in this and the way we raise kids? Well, we want kids to be safe. We want to protect them. And I've seen it in schools that I've taught in. You know, we want to monocle them. We want them to be as safe as possible all the time, every single minute of every day. So that when they actually get confronted by, you know, a challenge or a disagreement, they don't know how to deal with it. Well, we, we, we've got, you know, this safety culture, you know, a sort of, a, sort of uh, in a way, an exploitation of uh, Balby's uh, attachment theory from 1958. We, we've got a society now that, that, that is, you know, social workers, psychologists who are so well versed in attachment uh, with a view that, that if, you, if you have any level of detachment, we've, we've got to somehow stop that. But, the, but, but, but where I think we're getting it wrong, it's the direction that the detachment, I mean, I think it would have been better if you called it detachment theory, because from a survival perspective, you can't be breastfeeding when you're 20. You know, 100,000 years ago, you know, you're doing a hunt and the tigers or the antelopes say, oh, just wait, I've got a break because I need to go to mum to have a bit of a top-up. I mean, it wasn't really a survival-orientated, advantageous way of behaving. So from the point of birth, the, the, the child has to learn to detach from the parent. So what we're sort of getting sort of mixed up is, is a clear understanding of where that detachment comes from. So if the parents are very stable, they're there, it's the, the, the healthy form of detachment if it's engineered from the child's end, okay? So the child experiments at two or three or four and they push more and more distance between them, but they know if they want to turn around and come back, that security is there. But on the other hand, you also need, you also need elements of parental forced detachment. So, oh my God, the, you know, the parent isn't there. It, it depends on frequency and degree. You know, if the, if the parent is constantly detaching and doing it to a really brutal extent, then you're likely to train that child's survival system into developing maladaptive behavioural patterns. But, but what we can't do as a society or parents is, is, is in a way say, you know, protect the children, you know, give people... Uh, you, you trigger warnings all over the place. I mean, the, the actual experience of being triggered, of being upset, is a developmental experience. I mean, I'm not, it's all about degrees, isn't it? When you say it's a developmental experience, just to translate it into simple language, what you mean is you have to go through life and experience being triggered, quote-unquote, in order to grow. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, I can give you a little bit more. No, of no, it's good. I think, yeah. I think, I think, I think yeah. the simple yes is good. Yeah, there, yeah I was just about to go yeah. off into yeah. it all. Yeah. So, so, so you need to, like, I mean, Francis was saying this. You need to experience discomfort in order to be a fully fledged human being. I know this from my own life, and this is why this whole ideology, to some extent, this is why we've been talking about this stuff. I know that almost everything that I've ever done in my life that's been worthwhile, in my opinion, 
has involved extreme discomfort at some level. Every single thing, whether it's work, whether it's relationship, whether it's my own personal development as a human being, whether it's reading an important book, right? It's required discipline and sticking with it and sometimes reading a bit that I wasn't interested. Like, do you see what I'm saying? This idea that we must avoid discomfort as the greatest objective of our existence is absurd. But there's a more fundamental driver and need behind that mm. as well, because uh, you know, I talked to you about those, what I, what I call trigger packages earlier. If, if you, uh, 100,000 years ago, if you're four years old, there's a forest fire comes in, you smell the acrid smoke, you see the, experience, the expressions of the faces around you, you feel the heat and you hear the screaming and you manage to just get out with your life. You, the trauma-based learning system is going to create trigger packages that will endure for the rest of your life. Why? Because you don't experience another forest fire for the next 20 or 30 years. You know, you, you happen to be 32 or 33, you get the faintest whiff of acrid smoke, and bingo, you get that experience, that, that, that incredibly powerful visceral experience, and you become alert to what's going on around you, and you're warm, forewarned, and you get the hell out. Okay. Evolution has it that those trigger packages are incredibly resilient. They don't shift. But the other thing about them is they, are recon they can be reconditioned when they crack open. So a lot of therapeutic approaches today, like CBT, cognitive behavioral theory, uh, therapy orientated towards phobias, is actually causing the person to trigger in a sort of minor way and then an increasing way around, say, spiders or flying or whatever, because what it's actually doing is cracking open that trigger package, but in a manageable way, and then piling in new narratives. So, so when it shuts down again, it's less potent. And when it opens up again, there will be maybe other narratives and more restorative uh, resources, so it doesn't overwhelm you. So to come back to you, yeah, I mean... Triggering, uh, overcoming challenges, uh, uh, having upsets uh, are, yeah, are all really uh, opportunities to recondition. I mean, we don't want this to say, you know, abusive behaviour, mm -hmm. violence, sexual abuse. Those aren't constructive no. experiences. No. You know, they're incredibly damaging. I'm pretty sure that's always been universally understood. Yeah. I think what's happened yeah. in recent years is, is an attempt to conflate that, those things that you're talking about, violence, abuse, etc., with ordinary experiences in life. That's why people now talk about language as being violence, right? The words are now considered violence by some people because it's an attempt to, to conflate the two. And I think it's quite a deliberate attempt because it's a way of getting power over other people. Yeah, I didn't see it quite like mm. that. I, I, I think the people who are saying that, a lot of maybe some people are like that, but quite a lot of the people are genuinely triggered. You know, that, that sense of vulnerability, uh, you know, the, the, the anxiety, the fear, the pain, I think is quite real. What we have to look is, is how did people end up developing to have that type of sensitivity? So, so, so yeah, no, I see it slight, slightly differently. I take your point. So just to summarize, because you've already made this point, I take it, your conception of this is that people are hypersensitive. Am I okay to use that term? No, everyone. I mean, there's a greasing proportion of society, yes, yes. that are powerfully triggerable. And they are very easy to trigger. Yeah. because the unstable childhood environment they grew up in, combined with the education system, combined with blah, 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 you gotta be, and social media. Yeah, you've got to be a bit careful with that yeah. because okay parenting is a very broad spectrum of parenting. Sure. Okay, so so the, the, the branches of parenting that will really predictably generate sort of discordant behavioral patterns in life you know in the upper well upper and lower quartiles of that sort of distribution so so this isn't a message to parents that they somehow have to be perfect parents just being okay is largely good and then it's how your genetics interact with the environment 
that then really make the difference. But if you are starting to generate a society where where the where the 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 electric wires are encroaching, then you're pushing more people. You know that that shape of that distribution curve is changing, and and more and more people are starting to grow up with uh, uh, triggering systems, as I might call it, that are on a hairline, that, that are really sensitized to going off to any perceived threat and generate really powerful levels of discomfort. I mean, it's a very, very, very good point. Look, how much of, the, of this is also a type of narcissistic behavior as well, whereby someone goes to a comedy night, for instance, they hear a joke, everyone laughs, or the vast majority of people laugh. They feel it's disgusting. Therefore, they want to set the parameters of what is and what isn't acceptable because of the way they see the world. Isn't that a form of narcissism as well? Well, you, you, you're, you're, seeing, uh, you're seeing someone behave, uh, you know, driven by an attachment form of behavior. You know, well, their behavior is, is, is really trying to, in a way, reattach themselves to whoever they perceive to be their attachment group. So, so they're experiencing, you know, sort of quite a visceral sort of physical experience or maybe narratives are really punching into their brains that are really powerful. Uh, and a bit like your friend, you know, the, the, that joke has pushed them onto the live wire. And so now with uh, social media, they can go straight to that. And, and with, that's a classic avoidant behavioural pattern. They'll sate their discomfort by going out onto social media and, and, and demonstrating their virtue and that the, they don't align with that type of joke or that type of thinking, and that will calm them down. Well, here's the thing, though, because Francis' question, I think, is very good because I remember a situation where I was performing in a comedy show and my wife was there and she had literally just come back from Ukraine from her grandmother's funeral. And the comedian who was on before me was doing material pretty funny material about pushing his grandmother down the stairs. It was a comedy routine. Yeah, yeah. And my wife, being a normal person, obviously, she, you know, she was feeling a bit raw. Her, her grandmother, who was important in her life, had just died. Got up, went to the toilet, got a drink of water, waited for this comedian to get off stage, came back in the room and watched the rest of the show, right? She was not untriggered by him making jokes about a very raw subject for her yeah, at that time. Yeah, yeah. But it never occurred to her to go on social media and to sate her whatever in that way. So what is the difference between her and someone who feels that's what I think Francis is getting at when yeah. he talks about narcissism? Well, uh, a couple of things. You know, how well does it work when you write an article and you label group people narcissist? I mean, how convincing is that? How do, how do they... How do people react when you sort of label them with really quite negative sort of We're style? just asking you the question. Yeah. I, I, to me, it's not a question of persuasiveness. To me, it's a question of accuracy. Is it accurate or not to say that partly this is driven by narcissism? I, I suppose what you're looking at and you're talking to as a person who is looking at the behavioral patterns mm. and the drivers behind yeah. that, which is, I mean, I... The couple work I do, you know, the, the hundreds and hundreds of couples I've sat with, you know, far more difficult than the two of you, <laughs> so, you know, over the, over the years. Uh, and they, t you know, uh, and, and because they, they are coming in, they're talking about the real nuts and bolts of what's happening in their mm. relationships. And then they talk about the, one of their, chi their children who's just been labelled ADHD, or uh, some other label that's been given to them by a child psychologist. Now, there probably are children with ADHD or, or abnormal, but if that child psychologist were to really hear what I've heard about what's really going on in that family, they would marvel that that kid even gets out of bed in the morning. You know, when you hear what goes, you know, I hear stuff that you just wouldn't believe. And so we're, so we're mislabeling people all over the place in our society today. I mean, it's an easy thing to do, isn't it? You know, it just is a label person. I mean, I've been guilty of it until about six to nine months ago, you know, because, you know, my thinking around this has, always, has been evolving, you know. Uh, you know, uh, I might have been calling people virtue signals. I don't really do that now. I feel, you know, I don't do that because I just think that, the, the people I think about who, who are virtual are actually really great people, but well, I'm not they saying trigger, bad people. But they trigger, 
But they they tr they trigger and they but avoid. The we have to be able dissonance. to describe things accurately, though. I, I get this whole non-judgment yeah, thing. I, I get it, but but at the same time, I personally know people, and I know in myself the temptation to signal virtue on social media. I know it in myself, right? Yeah, it exists in all of I us. I would never do that. No, sure, mate. <laughs> right. Well, that's done. a great virtue signal. That's a great virtue Come signal, on. right Come there. On. So so this is my point is. We all have the instinct in us to get attention from the community, the society. To, to the attach. Tribe, to attach, attach, right? To attach. So to, attach. To, to say that somebody is engaging in virtue signaling is not to say that they're a bad person or that they're immoral. It is to say that they're engaging in a behavior that I recognize. Look, look I think we're... Well, three of us, we're all seeing, you know, this, this, the, the, this, this identitarian culture mm. where minority groups are being convinced that any problems that they have in their lives have got nothing to do with them. It, you know, it, it's got everything to do with the society around them. I'm not saying, you know, society doesn't have its problems and, and, and don't, don't negatively influence groups, but to send a message to certain minority groups or groups of people that it's nothing to do with you, you know, don't ever look at your behaviour, just look outside of yourself. Well, yeah, that is incredibly damaging. But I, uh, I, the reason why I quite like the uh, live right, vote left, is it's actually descriptive of the behaviour. Sure. Yeah. Whereas uh, virtue signaler is a sort of quite a pejorative term, but where you could argue, yeah, well, that's actually a description of the behaviour, I suppose. But so it, it sort of have a sense that it's quite sort of just quite pejorative, you know, it's, quite, it's a put down, isn't it? And I, I have to say, I've been guilty of that myself in years gone by, but it, it doesn't work. It just pisses people off. Mm. No, it's, what if you want to piss them off? Yeah, I mean, well, then you go for it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, then you drive engagement yeah. on social media. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's the way to do it. We've got to wrap up, man. There's one more question that I wanted to ask, right? Which is this: Why have we started to conflate mental health with mental illness? Ah, oh. and we use these two terms interchangeably when they obviously have very, very different meanings. Well, if you read a book called Black Rainbow by, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, Rachel, it will come to me. Black Rainbow, it's about this Times journalist's journey through her mental illness over 20 years. And if you ever want to get an understanding of what is the difference, you know, what is mental health, mm. what really is mental illness, read that book. You know, because she eviscerates herself. You may not, you know, she's very wealthy, uh, has got the ideal life, but but she turns her pen on herself in the most unremitting way. And you, and if ever you want to get an understanding of what the difference is, I mean, basically, mental illness, mental health is is you're basically engaging in behavioural patterns that are getting in the way of you experiencing your life in the way you want to. Uh, Getting up and being a bit sad in the morning is something different. But, you know, I think in this, uh, I've seen, uh, seen listened to a few podcasts, you ask it, the, you know, if you want to ask me that final question you do, I, I, might, I might be able to respond to that a little bit more. What's the one thing we're not talking about that we really should be? <laughs> Seamless. Uh, yeah, great. It's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, I think it's sort of the way people in the public eye are talking about the experience of psychotherapy. Uh, it's great. I mean, it's it's fine to say, hey, I've been to see a psychotherapist, or or you know, I went with, you know, I had I had these issues. But what we're starting to see is people talk about what they actually talk about in the psychotherapy session. You know, in the public eye, they're they're talking about relations or what people did or what people said, and what they're doing unwittingly probably is they're weaponizing the actual psychotherapy session and one of the most precious things about psychotherapy in our culture today is is the perception that if you sit with someone like me or any of my peers who are in the mainstream therapeutic organization the BACP uh, you know any of these sort of psychological mainstream we're all really tied into really strong senses of ethics around confidentiality and if we start to challenge 
you know, through what we talk about that actually happens in the session publicly, then you're starting to create an impression that, you know, what's talked about in there can just be spread everywhere. And I think that's a retrograde step. And the next thing is, is, is uh, starting to get, and I think coming back to your question, Francis, is starting to get a bit more of a gauge about when they're accessing psychotherapy. So, so it's okay to feel a bit sad at times. It's okay to feel a bit angry at times. You know, that's not a mental illness. If you're, if you're being angry all the time or sad all the time, yeah, that's, that could well be a problem. But I think people in the public eye need to think a little bit more about how they're communicating the degree of uh, their, their, their mental health issues that are causing them to go to therapy or not. So I'd like that to be the, the awareness of how people in public eye talk about the reasons why they go to therapy, what happens to therapy, and the, the degree of the issues that cause them to go to therapy. I think that would, uh, in a way, preserve and protect the, the, the sanctity and the effectiveness of therapy, regardless of how you practice it. And that is a wonderful point to end the show. Thank you so much for coming on. If people want to find you, where is the best place to do that? Well, I, I'm now, uh, you know, delivering, a, a, you know, public uh, workshops, two-hour workshops. Oh, by the way, uh, all the training I do is not for profit. So I charge as little as I can. Uh, and a third of all the revenues that I generate go to the charity shelter uh, because of the connection between mental health and, and homelessness. Andrew Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's been really interesting, really fascinating to meet you and talk to you. Thank you. You Likewise. as well. Likewise. And uh, thank you for watching and listening. We will see you very soon with another interview. Uh, all of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And of course, you can catch a raw show as well. We've got those four nights a week, 7 p.m. UK time, 2 p.m. Eastern. Take care and see you soon, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this incredible interview. Remember to subscribe and hit the bell button so that you never miss another fantastic episode. And if you believe that the work we do here at Trigonometry is important, support us by joining our locals community using the link below. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.